Welcome to the Evolution 2.0 podcast, where we explore the intersection of art, technology, business, biology, and spirituality. Here, you'll discover new trends in evolution that are changing the way we think about everything. This is your host, Perry Marshall, author of Evolution 2.0, 80-20 Sales and Marketing, and guides to Ethernet, Google, and Facebook. I'm founder of the Evolution 2.0 Prize, a quest for the missing link between Earth science, the information age, and life itself. Let's join the conversation now. I am here with two very distinguished gentlemen. I'm, in fact, I'm thrilled to have them both here today. I, I wasn't sure this was actually going to work, but it did. I've got Michael Levin from Tufts University, and I did a podcast with him couple of years ago called Picasso Tadpoles in the Dark Matter of Biology, which got a lot of um, comments and, and stuff. And we've since been working together uh, in several capacities. And uh, he helped me with a paper that I wrote last year. Um, I've been helping with him with our Science Foundation. So a lot of interesting things there. You'll hear more about Don Hoffman is a cognitive psychologist and a professor at the Department of Cognitive Sciences at UC Irvine. And he is author of this book that you see here called The Case Against Reality, How Evolution Hid the Truth from Our Eyes. And uh, both of these folks have very interesting views about consciousness and cognition. And I think Cognition, if you uh, use several words, agency, consciousness, cognition, I think is the central issue in biology. And I think for a long time, would you guys agree that in some circles, for a long time, this was like a redheaded stepchild, like nobody really wants to genuinely acknowledge the, like how important this is? I mean, am, am I overstating it all by saying that? Not at all. I remember when I was a graduate student at MIT, you couldn't talk about consciousness, for example. If you talked about consciousness that showed that you weren't a real serious student and probably weren't worth people's time. So I, I had to work on it sort of just other names like perception and, and so forth. Mm -hmm. But when, when Francis Crick in the early 90s, late 80s, early 90s said, hey, you know, we really need to jump on this, then, then, then it became more respectable. So you would have a you would have a conscious experience of having a very unpleasant day if you made too much of consciousness, right? So I just didn't do it <laughs> at the Mike, time. What were you going to say? Well, I was just going to say, yeah, I, I think that's absolutely true. And worse yet, there are many places that you can't even talk about cognition, never mind consciousness. So there are, of course, departments where we study the brain and then cognition is fine. And then you go next door and maybe it's a molecular biology department or something like this. And now, never mind consciousness, now cognition is out too. And and now you're supposed to talk about chemistry. And, uh, and so, yeah. So I think there's a very interesting overlap between your work and i'm not entirely clear on you know where you guys are 100 percent simpatico and where you might disagree i'm probably going to find out today but michael i'll i'll start with you you told me a story when i saw you in person last summer that you went into computer science because 
you wanted to figure out artificial <laughs> intelligence and like how are we uh, some how are we going to make a brain an artificial brain and like how how could all that kind of stuff work in it and you ended up realizing well it's actually the biology people that we're going to have to go look at if we're going to figure this out can you explain how that uh the inception of that and, and how that path went for you yeah, I think the easiest way to think about this is simply that, I mean, I, I was always interested in mind and this idea that uh, there are some objects in our world that seem to have preferences, they seem to have memories, they seem to have uh, the ability to uh, expend energy towards certain kinds of outcomes and not others. And that, that, that's a very, and, and, and their competency at doing that is widely differing, right? And so, uh, it was really fascinating to me to find out what the difference was, right? What are the, what's the difference between a complex piece of engineering that we put together versus one of these kinds of uh, creatures that has intrinsic kinds of motivation and so on. And so the reason that this leads to biology is simply this. We, we all, all of us, took the journey across the Cartesian cut. We all started life as a bag of chemicals, right? As, a, as an oocyte, as an unfertilized egg. So that's a bag of chemicals. You can look at it, you can say, and, and some people will say that that's just physics, whatever that means. They, they will say, you know, this is, a, this is a mechanistic system. It's just physics. There's no co cognition there, fine. Then eventually you become not that much longer thereafter. So nine months plus some years thereafter, you become this creature with complex metacognition cells, you know, self-awareness and people and, and you become maybe one of the folks that will make claims like I have true, you know, cognition, the rest of, you know, there's no way machines can do X, Y, Z. I have the real thing. But you got there very smoothly and slowly from a bag of chemicals, right? Both evolutionarily and, of course, developmentally. So that's the thing that drives me is this idea that there was no lightning flash at, you know, day 71 where, aha, now you're a cognitive system. No, every, every day something very, very small changes happen and you sort of rearranged your structures and so on. And then you, be, you went from physics to cognition. And how does that happen? So that's what drives me is, this, is the idea of this continuum, the fact that we change slowly and we change profoundly. And how does that happen? And when was it that you realized that the computer science guys weren't the guys that had this figured out? Well, um, let me let me turn it on its head. Uh, I mean, I, 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 I realized that in, in undergrad, I mean, I went there primarily to do machine learning and artificial intelligence and, and realized that, uh, yeah, we didn't seem to know how to do that. But I, 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 I'll, I'll sort of put it on its head by saying that I still think that what I do is computer science. It's, it's in living media. But I think it's a branch of computer science. And I don't think there's any, you know, I don't want to come off as saying that computer science is somehow limited and we have to go outside the field. I actually think in many ways what we're interested in in biology is basically a branch of, of the science of computation, not the science of computers as we know them, but the science of computation done in unconventional media. Okay. Okay. That's, that's great. And so... And, and just so tell a little more, more of the story. So you get out of computer science school and then and then you did what and and now you're doing what? Just give me a two minute version of that. I got also a biology undergrad degree. So I have a BS degrees in computer science and biology. After that, I went to grad school in biology, specifically in genetics. Um, I got a PhD in genetics. 
And then after that, I did a postdoc in cell biology, and then I started my own lab. And so since those, ever since then, my group works at this um, kind of weird intersection of developmental biology, computer science, and cognitive science. We're interested in how various kinds of um, living machines make decisions, how they have uh, preferences, beliefs, um, inner experience, all, all of that. Very interesting interdisciplinary stuff too. So, John, how did you, was it on purpose, by accident, how did you stumble into this strange field? Very similar to what Mike said, but maybe just to compliment. So I, I was in the psychology at, at UCLA, in quantitative psychology program, and I was quite taken by a class on the neuroscience of vision. And I was stunned at all these receptive fields and what they were doing. And and I was also taking courses in, in computer science. I, I actually was working at Hughes Aircraft Company programming military microprocessors as a way to pay my way through UCLA. So I was part of the Cold War. And I was writing machine code at the time. So I was doing computer programming all the time for my day job and then doing it at UCLA for you know, my classes, writing a compiler for Pascal and so forth. And then I discovered this guy named David Marr hmm. at a class at UCLA. And his writing about vision really grabbed my attention. It was like he had a PhD in, in neurophysiology. He'd done something, some work on the cerebellum, some brilliant work. But he had realized sort of the complement of what Mike just said, which was if he was going to really understand the neuroscience, he had to, to do the computation stuff. Well, I guess it's, it's really what Mike was saying, but the, the arrow came from the neurophysiology into the computers instead of the other way. And so David Marr went to MIT and was part of the AI lab there, as well as was now the brain and cognitive science department. So I said, wow, I want, so I, I managed to get it uh, into grad school there. So I went and became David's student with uh, David Marr and, and Whitman Richards and was in the AI lab and then the brain and cognitive science department. So I was very much interested in how the two related. And I liked the computational point of view because I was concerned that the neuroscience wouldn't lead to clean theories that would tell us how the thing worked and why it was doing what it did. And so, so I was very interested in, in having theories that you could build, right? If you think this is how vision works, build one. If you can build one that works, it doesn't mean you're right. But at least it means you have a theory that's worth our time to figure out why it's wrong. And, and so, uh, so that's sort of how I, I got into this whole thing. Well, I think what we're all three interested in is building stuff. I'm an engineer by education. And um, Dick Feynman long ago said something like, that which I cannot build, I do not understand. And I, I've, I like to say the gold standard in science isn't peer review. It's can you build it and does it work? And so you guys, you guys are both interested in building stuff and you're interested in building things that have consciousness or cognition or use consciousness and cognition. So that's, it's very interesting. It, it's very scary. So, so Don, you have this very, I think it's a very understandable, fascinating metaphor about computer desktops and icons that you use to explain why what we perceive to be reality is not necessarily what reality is. And in fact, perceiving it in some perfectly objective way might not even be helpful. Could you explain that metaphor for the people here that haven't heard that? Right. So I decided, I don't know, 15 years ago to tackle a very specific technical question. 
The question is this, does evolution by natural selection shape sensory systems to show organisms aspects of the structure of reality? Right? So in other words, are we shaped to see truth? What is the probability that evolution shapes organisms to see the truth? Where I use the word see in the generic sense, perceive the truth. And that's it. It turns out that evolution by natural selection is a mathematically precise theory. Now we have evolutionary game theory, evolutionary graph theory, all, even genetic algorithms. So we don't have to wave our hands. We can actually look at the theory and ask, answer this technical question. And so I first worked with Justin Mark and Brian Marion, some graduate students of mine, Kyle Stevens. And our simulations seem to indicate that, uh, you know, seeing the truth wasn't going to win most of the time. It was, it was actually going to make you extinct for, you know, against creatures that just use shortcuts, rules of thumb and heuristics, um, even if the creatures were of equal complexity. So then I went to a colleague, uh, Chaitan Prakash, who's a mathematician, and uh, also Manish Singh and, and some other, you know, Chris Fields. And we worked on, on this together. And but Chaitan was the mathematician who really brought it home. And it's basically a theorem that uh, the probability is zero that any sensory system for any organism has ever been shaped to see any aspect of objective reality with one exception we can go into if you're interested it's called sigma algebras and i can go into why sigma algebras are the one exception but other than that there's absolutely nothing in the theory now again i'm not doctrinaire about this i'm just saying evolution of natural selection is the single best theory we have right now for understanding biology so as a scientist it's my job to take that theory very seriously and ask precise questions of that theory. And, and so we can ask a precise question and the answer is surprising. The, the precise answer is the probability is zero that anything that we see, so space and time, the shapes of objects, the colors, the positions, even the very existence of these objects, independent of our perceptions, the probability is zero. So, you know, to Einstein's question, is the moon there when no one looks? Evolution answers no. Evolution answers that the moon is some kind of data structure that your sensory systems create. You're interacting with, re with some kind of reality, but that reality is not spatiotemporal. It doesn't have physical objects like moons and neurons. It, it's something utterly different. Uh, and the theory is good enough to tell us that, but it's not good enough to tell us what's beyond space and time, right? Our theories can only tell us the limits, but they can't tell us what's on the other side. And I'll just add, we may want to talk about this as well, Quantum field theory, it turns out, says the same thing. Space-time is not fundamental. Particles are not fundamental, and then it, it's provable from that theory. So when we have the two big pillars of modern science, namely quantum field theory with gravity and evolution with natural selection, both saying that space-time is doomed, space-time is not fundamental, that has all sorts of implications for the study of life and neuroscience that um, the neuroscientists aren't yet even beginning to think about. Well, the first question a person should ask when you talk about objective reality is what's objective reality, right? So uh, this is going to feed right into the analogy that's in your book, but I'm looking at a computer screen and it's got a little camera and a green light and, and a keyboard and everything. But if you say, what's a computer and what's going on in the computer? Well, there's these pixels on my screen and they're doing what we're all seeing, right? But that screen is just a representation of a deeper reality of what's going on in the circuit boards and the hard drive, right? 
And anybody that's done computer science knows that there's, I don't know, 56 or 17 levels of codes and systems and operating systems and everything. So which one of those, like, you could look at every single one of those layers and it would tell you something different. None of us have enough brain cells or, or eyes and ears to see all the stuff that's going on. So we have to pick something. Why don't you go into your computer icon analogy to try to, I think you can say it better than I can. Right. So, and, and the, the thing that you led off with too is a very important point, which is, and then I'll go into the analogy. As you pointed out, how, how in the world could I use evolutionary theory to tell us that we don't see the truth if I don't know what the truth is? So if I don't know what objective reality is, then how in the how, what, what kind of guy is this that claims that we don't see the truth? How does he know what the truth is? How, so it, it seems like I've I proposed something that's just a fool's errand, right? You yes. have to know the truth to know that you don't know the truth. Well, that's the power of scientific theories. Evolution by natural selection gives us the tools to answer the question for any possible structure that reality might have. We don't know what structure it actually has or what structures it has. But in each case, you can say, if it had a total order, if it had a metric, if it had this topology, what is the probability that that structure would be preserved in, 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 by our sensory systems? And you can show in each case the probability is precisely zero as you let the number of states of the world get arbitrarily large and the number of payoff values get. So you don't have to know what the truth is to know, according to evolutionary theory, that uh, whatever the truth is, you don't see it, except for sigmatative classes and signals. So then the next question that you raised here was is basically the natural one that comes next, which is, okay, well, if our senses haven't been shaped by natural selection to show us the truth, then what good are they? And, and what are they doing for us? I mean, you know, it, it seems like you've destroyed the one thing that you would expect of your sensory system. Of course, they're going to show you the truth. That's how you stay fit. You see the truth. That's how you, you don't see all of the truth, but you see the parts of the truth that you need to stay fit. Clearly, that's how it works. And that's what most of my colleagues have assumed. And that's what I assumed until I did the work. I'm still alive. I didn't get hit by the bus yesterday. My eyes must be falling, right? Exactly right. Yeah. And and someone could say, well, look, if you think that bus isn't real, step in front of it. And after you're dead, we'll know that it was real. Well, and, and so that's where this computer interface analogy comes in, right? So what, and I'm, I'm just saying this is analogy. This is, you know, this is to help people get intuitions. As you said, if you, if you have a desktop interface and you're writing a book, say, and the icon for the book is blue and rectangular in the middle of your screen, does that mean that the book itself is blue and rectangular and in the middle of your computer? Right? Anybody who thought that just misunderstands the point of the interface. It's, it's not there to show you the truth. In fact, we pay good money for an interface to hide the truth. We don't want to have to toggle voltages and magnetic fields in a computer to write a book. If you had to do that, there would be very little book publishing and very little emails being sent and and so forth. So that's what evolution did. It actually gave us a user interface that effectively completely hides the nature of objective reality, hides all those gory details and gives us just the eye candy, the simple icons that we need to control those aspects of reality that we need to control to stay alive long enough to reproduce. Full stop. So we have an interface that guides adaptive behavior. And that's all evolution does. It gives you senses that guide adaptive behavior and seeing the truth is not a part of it. It's not needed and so it's not done. 
So Don, would it be accurate to say that perception is representations and even representations of representations and because they have to be useful our senses are do very much what we do when we build a computer which is um, you know it was a great blessing to the world when instead of having to toggle machine code and do all this really weird stuff like you would like uh, whatever um, a Sinclair 1000 computer like which hardly anybody can figure out how to use versus Steve Jobs gave us a, okay, drag the thing to the trash. And he made a useful representation rather than an absolute truth. And everybody was like, okay, I can deal with that. Absolutely. So that's what evolution did. And, and, And you're right. My first programming was on a military microprocessor called the ANYUK-30. And I literally was toggling ones and zeros. I knew the machine code. And we did an entire flight simulator in 64K. You could do any mission in 64K. But that's because we programmed every single bit. You can imagine my relief when I didn't have to do the bits. And when I started being able to use, you know, higher level programming languages. And But, but of course, evolution has given us something even more advanced than like, uh, you know, Fortran or Lisp or Pascal or something like that or C++. It's given us a full-on graphical user interface, which allows us to control the bits at a very, very high level. But that's what we're doing. We're toggling bits effectively. And so we have our data structures. And so so as I, I look up at the sky and I see the moon, I'm creating on the fly a data structure. And as soon as I look away, I garbage, we're using computer science terminology now, I garbage collect that data structure. It no longer exists. So this makes a clean prediction in physics. Clean prediction, no physical object has definite values of its physical properties like position, momentum, and spin when it's not observed. The claim is technically something called local realism and non-contextual realism are have to be false according to evolution by natural selection. And, and it turns out when the physicists do the experiments, local realism and non-contextual realism are false. In fact, okay. space-time itself is doomed. So it's not just the objects, it's space-time that's not there. <laughs> so isn't this an, a way of pointing out that even though, especially as technical people, we tend to think, we like to think of science as this objective thing, but the reality is, Every measurement that we didn't do, we are trusting somebody else that their senses and their measurement and their meter or their temperature gauge was what they said it was. And then guess what? If I do the experiment myself, I'm still doing the experiment through my senses and through my perceptions. That's right. But the way scientists have thought about this is that we can always take a reductionist view of those senses. So even though we have the neurobiology of vision and haptics and you know acoustics and so forth, I would say 99% of my colleagues in cognitive neuroscience, for example, are full-blown reductionists, right? So they, they assume that um, as you, reductionism is the claim that as you go to smaller and smaller scales in space or space-time, you get to deeper and deeper, more fundamental laws of nature. Well, it turns out that space-time itself is doomed. You know, you, you, if you want 
a physicist to tell you this, Nima Arkani Hamed, Nima Arkani Hamed at the Institute for Advanced Study. If you just Google his name and, and space time is doomed, you can hear it from the man himself. Like there's a, a semester long course at Harvard in 2019. You can take his course online, it's free, and you can find out in as much detail as you want why it's over. Space time has had a good ride. And as he puts it, with it, reductionism is dead. In fact, space time only goes to 10 to the minus 33 centimeters. It's not that deep. If it was 10 to the minus 33 trillion centimeters, I'd be impressed, but it's only 10 to the minus 33. So the very notion of space, spatial features below that scale have no operational definition. The same thing for time less than 10 to the minus 43. There's no operational meaning to these things. So space time is not fundamental. It cannot be fundamental. And what's stunning is they found structures beyond space time. These are, believe it or not, their geometries called polytopes. So amplitudehedron, cosmological polytope, associohedron. These are structures beyond space-time. So there's no space, there's no time, but you can show how quantum theory and Einstein's theory of space-time both arise together, joined at the hip, from a deeper theory that has no space-time and no quantum theory, no Hilbert spaces. So the physicists now for the last 15 years have really been pursuing this. Um, this is fairly new. The, the first hint came in 1986, I think, with uh, some physicists named Park and Taylor who discovered a formula for scattering of, of gluon processes that they needed to do for collision analysis, scattering analysis. And they discovered that if you do it in space time, well, Feynman had taught us how to do it in space time. It was just like on hundreds of pages of algebra for like two gluons in, four gluons out. You couldn't if, if you're doing millions of these per second, you, you, you couldn't do the computations on a computer. So Park and Taylor discovered a single formula that you could write down on a sheet of paper by hand that collapsed hundreds of pages of algebra to just a, a couple terms. And mm -hmm. then the amplitudehedron with uh, Nima Arkani Hamed and, and uh, Yaroslav Trinkov discovered, and then the further work on that has found many, many more of these scattering amplitudes that can be, when you do them in space and time, if you force yourself to do the computation in space and time, it's ugly and you don't see symmetries, something called the dual conformal symmetry, which is true of the scattering data, you don't see it. So the math is ugly, the symmetries are hidden, and but when you let go of space-time, all of a sudden, these jewels appear, these geometric jewels, the volumes of different parts of the jewels completely encode the scattering probabilities, the scattering amplitudes, and sort of the phase structure gives you unitarity and locality. All, so all the stuff that we like in space and time is coded implicitly in these things, and you see new symmetries that are true of the data that can't be seen in space-time. So it's really over for space-time, and, and therefore it's over for reductionism. So, so the reductionist framework, which has been so powerful for the last couple of centuries, it's over, and neuroscience is going to take a while to catch up. This is only the last 15 years in physics. So that's, you know, I'm not surprised that neuroscience hasn't caught up, but, but frankly, we shouldn't be wasting our time with reductionism. We, you know, we now know it's like Newton, right? Once you know about the, the ultraviolet catastrophe with black body radiation, you, you know that Newton's not the final word on reality. It, it, you know, the, the smart money is gonna be looking at something like Einstein <laughs> for yeah. the, the new, new insight. And so right now I, I would say the smart money is not on reductionist neurobiological neurobiological reductionist theories of consciousness. 
we need to go deeper because our best science is telling us that reductionism is dead. That's both evolution by natural selection and um, the physicists, both. So this is a perfect time to jump over to Mike. So Mike, we were talking about toggling bits and versus moving icons around. And you've got your own version of this because the bit togglers in biology are molecular <laughs> biologists and geneticists and you know, they're dealing at a very granular level. And uh, you've been saying and showing for quite a while that there are completely other higher level systems of biology that you can reprogram and things and get results without even knowing what's going on at those bottom levels. Um, could you talk about, well, Go anywhere you want with that. You've, you've got about a hundred examples of it. What's one or two of your favorites? Yeah, um, I, I want to I take a quick step back and uh, uh, kind of draw a little, a little picture that, that merges, I think, very nicely with what Don has been saying. Because uh, the way I got to a, a, a similar conclusion, I, 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 I mean, not the physics, I can't follow any of the physics, but I, I agree with the, with the basics of what Don is saying for the following reason. Um, and I'll give you some examples. Um, I think that that evolution isn't isn't here's a here's a slightly different take on what evolution is actually doing, which I think then makes sense here. I don't think evolution is solving a specific problem in the sense of here's an environment and we're going and evolution is going to design a creature that's fit for that environment, right? Because that's the sort of view that might expect you to have a creature that accurately sees its world. I don't actually think that's what evolution is doing. I think what evolution is doing is pro producing machines that are very good at solving novel problems. So evolution isn't producing solutions to problems. It produces machines that solve problems um, in, on the fly. Right. The neuroscience version of that view is uh, there's a book, for example, by Nick Chater called The Mind is Flat. And it's this idea that that a lot of these things are kind of generated on the fly. And and I have a similar thing that that I'm working on writing that could be summarized as development is flat. That basically the idea is that because you're dealing with let's start all the way in the beginning uh, ev evolution, let's say, of multicellular forms is not working with passive materials that it has to arrange in specific um, organizations and make sure that everything works and so on. Evolution is dealing with an agential material. It's dealing with cells that are themselves former organ, well, in fact, still organisms. They have their own agendas. They, they already do things. And so what evolution has to work with is the space of different um, signals, inducements, rewards and punishments and ways to get those cells to do whatever whatever is appropriate for them to do. And those cells, if you look at things from their perspective, they don't know what space they should be solving problems in. It might be metabolic, it might be transcriptional, it might be morphogenetic space, it might be three-dimensional um, spaces we're used to, you know, animals, big animals like us running around and, and modern robotics and so on, doing things in 3D space. There are many different problem spaces. And cells don't know where the organism begins and ends because every every internal cell is some other cell's external environment, right? Uh, right. And so, because these creatures, as they're being put together from literally from molecules, have to solve all these problems on the fly. They have to do active inference. They have to make predictions about their environment. They have to build stories about themselves, meaning self models of what their causal power is they have to understand what you know they're, they're limited in terms of their metabolics so they can't just be giving out every signal they want 
they have to be able to tell in their environment what are the signals that actually make things happen right what are the what are the most causally potent knobs that they can twist in this in this world that they're in and then they can they sort of turn that on themselves and they have to construct models of themselves as causal integrated agents as selves and all of this stuff figuring out what problems you're solving where you begin and end who your neighbors are what you are how much causal capacity you have all of these things get get solved on the fly and and I'll, I'll you know I can give you some examples of that no wonder uh, evolution is not uh, f- f- you know sort of trying to drive you to an accurate picture of your reality because there's no saying what that reality is going to be all of the prior experience that you've had is not necessarily a great guide to what you're going to encounter in the future and what biology is really good at and one of the one of the amazing you know kind of super interesting areas is why it is that that evolution actually does this biology is really good at learning to get along with whatever it is that you've got right and if you're building all that stuff from scratch and you're trying to make sense of your world from scratch all the time and you know maybe you think you can rely on certain things and maybe you can't then of course what you're going to try to do is tell the best story to yourself that you can about where you are and what you're doing and you can forget about uh, this some idea that there's some objective i mean everything is observer dependent in this view it's all from the perspective of either the system itself or some sort of parasite that's trying to hack it or a conspecific that wants to mate with it or yeah, all of this is observer dependent by the way the observers come in different scales so the cells are watching each other the tissues are all watching each other the the swarm i mean every no, no wonder there's not a single objective reality that any of this can dependably sort of home in on right and the kinds of examples uh, there's a couple examples uh, that i can give there's a there's a here's a very old example which is that's from it comes from the 40s where normal development which by the way the, the the thing about all of this is that normal development is so reliable that it really obscures the intelligence of all of these parts it seems kind of well what else is that of course that's what's going to happen well that's only because you've seen it happen reliably so many times once you start messing with it you really see the intelligence of these things so here you are. You have a you have a you have a newt, and um, the newt is starts with with a you know with a single fertilized egg, and and it develops into a newt. And the cells are a certain size, and they work together to make tubules, kidney tubules. These little tubes that go to the kidneys. And if you take a cross section through one of those tubules, you'll see that there's maybe eight to ten cells, and they sort of work together in a kind of a circle, and they leave a lumen in the middle, and that's your kidney tubule. So one thing you can do is uh, you can, through a trick that we don't need to get into, you can force the early cells to have more than normal the number of chromosomes. So, right, so you can double, triple, whatever the number of chromosomes. Well, the first thing, the first amazing thing is that you still get a newt out after you've doubled in the instructions, supposedly the instructions and all of that, you still get a normal newt. So that's already kind of weird, but let's, let's get past that. One of the things that happens is the cells get much bigger. So the more genetic material, the bigger, the physically bigger the cells get. When the cells get bigger, how do you make a kidney tubule with bigger cells? Why you use fewer cells to make the exact same size tubule. So that's already interesting because it turns out that this thing is really smart and it doesn't just all scale up and make this giant tubule because the Legos are bigger. No, actually, uh, as the Legos get bigger, there's fewer of them that work together to make the exact same tubule. That's the interesting thing, part two. That's also amazing. It gets even better than that. The best part is... When you make those cells so big that you can't even fit two of them around the circumference of the tubule, what do they do? A single cell will bend around itself, leaving a spot in the middle and making a tubule all by itself. What's amazing about that is that it uses a completely different 
molecular mechanism where normally you would have cell to cell communication and so on. In this case, no, you have cytoskeletal bending. So what you have, I mean, talk about reductionism. What you have here is this amazing example of top-down causation where in the service of a large scale macrostate having a proper anatomical tubule, diverse molecular states get activated. Why did cytoskeleton bending get activated instead of cell to cell communication? Because you needed to have a tubule of the correct size. Okay. Now, obviously, this way of looking at it is not mainstream, right? It's this, you know, this, we can talk about this whole, you know, kind of teleonomic approach that I use and so on. But that is an example of many things. It's an example of intelligence in anatomical morphospace, meaning solving new problems that you haven't seen before. It's an example of the incredible plasticity of life. So here is all the developmental mechanisms I've been using exactly these size cells for how many millions of years. All of a sudden you change the parts, no problem, everything gets fixed. This goes beyond plasticity to things like injury. I mean, it's amazing enough that the same salamander, you, you cut its arm off, it'll grow a new arm, but injuries happen all the time. That's, you know, that that's, you can, you can sort of see how that capacity is there. You Not only in changes of the environment, but changes of your own parts. Right. That's why all of this works is because all of this, every example of development is doing this. It's figuring out how to do this with the parts I have all the time. And you only see the, these amazing kind of um, examples of novelty when you start really perturbing things. I mean, we don't have any technology where you can say, uh, you know what, I'm going to quadruple the size of all my parts. I still want the exact same size car, though. We don't have any technology that, 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 that works that way. So you see that kind of intelligence. You see the ability to navigate morphospace using different parts, starting off from different uh, configurations, right? Um, uh, the example of the frog face that I often give. The fact that if you start off with a tadpole with all the organs scrambled in the wrong location, you still largely get a normal frog because it, what the biology gave us is not a system that moves in a very predetermined way to make a frog out of a tadpole. It actually gave us a machine that can do error minimization that basically you're starting off in the wrong position no problem wander around until the error is small enough traverse that morphospace in a with, with some degree of competency get to be a frog error is low then everything stops so that's one that those are a couple of examples the other you know one of my favorite examples are these uh, the others are the xenobots so the thing with the xenobots is these are for anybody who doesn't know, these are, um, so what you do is uh, you take an early frog embryo, and by the way, this has nothing to do with being an embryo or being a frog. This is a much more general phenomenon. You take the embryo, you take some skin cells off of it, and you let those skin cells have a new life. You basically let them reimagine their multicellularity. You don't add anything, no new genes, no nanomaterials, nothing, but, but you take something away. It's engineering by subtracting constraints. What you do is you take away the other cells that are normally bullying these skin cells into being a boring two-dimensional layer on the outer surface. If you look at a normal embryo and you ask, what do skin cells want to do? Well, you would say, well, of course, they want to be the outer two, you know, flat layer, you know, around the, the, the embryo. That's not what the cells want to do. How do you know? Because if you take away the other cells that are normally forcing them to do that, you get to see what they do on their own. What do they do on their own? They, well, there's many things they could do. They could do nothing. They could die. They could um, run off and separate from each other. They could make a nice flat monolayer the way cell culture does. They don't do any of those things. What they do is over a couple of nights, they merge together into this little ball. They repurpose their little hairs, the little cilia that are normally used to um, redistribute mucus over the surface of the frog. They use those to row against the water. So the ones on the left row this way, the ones on the right row this way, and the whole thing swims. 
And then they do cool things like they run mazes, they cooperate with each other to build copies of themselves out of loose cells. So von Neumann's dream, right, of, of a machine that runs around and collects parts, and they do that. They do kinematic self-replication. If you just sprinkle a bunch of loose cells, they will run around, corral them together, corral them into little, little piles. The little piles become xenobots, and guess what they do? They run around and do the same thing. So you have multiple generations of bots doing this. Now, here's the, here's the kicker. This is why I'm, I'm bringing all this stuff up. First of all, any creature on Earth, a standard creature that you pick up and you ask, why does it look the way it looks? Why is it this color? Why does it have this behavior? The answer is always the same. Why selection, of course, because for millions of years, it's been shaped to everybody else died off. And, and, and this is the thing that fits the nice, you know, froggy environment, right? Okay, there's never been any xenobots. There's never been selection to be a good xenobot ever. This whole thing was figured out by these cells on the fly within 48 hours in a completely novel configuration, right? There's no creature that reproduces by kinematic self-replication that we know of. What we've done is we've made it impossible for these cells to reproduce in the normal frog-like fashion. They figured out another way of doing it. That ability of these cells to find themselves in a novel configuration that never had specific... I mean, of course, the cells were the product of selection in the context of skin. So they do all kinds of cool skin things, right, which get repurposed. They, they regenerate. So, for example, skin repairs itself, so they regenerate, so xenobots can regenerate. But all of this gets repurposed into a new coherent proto-organism that's never existed before, where, where along, you know, eons of selection are not at all the explanation for how they got here. Right. And so that level of, of, you know, of course, they're going to build a different model of reality than tadpoles and embryos build. And, uh, you know, the other cool thing about it is when we as engineers build these xenobots, we do very little. The bots, the, the cells do most of the heavy lifting, right? They know how to do this stuff. And we're working with this agential material. We're basically just giving them input stimuli. This is exactly what, what you and Don were talking about where we're not rewiring the genome, we're not, uh, you know, micromanaging any of this stuff. We're, we're giving them a new environment to sort of push them into this. It's, it's guided self-assembly. It isn't micromanagement. That's exactly how xenobots make the next generation of xenobots. They run around and they, and they make these little piles that the whole multi-generational trick only works because the piles themselves are going to turn into the next generation of bots. It, it, the whole process takes advantage of the competency of these cells. So we as engineers took advantage of the competency. The bots themselves took advantage of that competency in making the next generation. And guess who else takes advantage of that? Evolution itself. Because what that means is when you're doing evolution, you don't have to search this horrible, um, multi, you know, astronomically large space of all possible micro configurations. No, you search a nice, smooth space of different signals that you could send to cells to modify them to do this or that. But yeah, so that's it. I think I think it's extremely compatible with Don's view because... All of this stuff has to be constructed on the fly. And so that's what evolution is giving us is machines that are good at doing that, not being attached to some one model of reality that's been there for, you know, eons with this, you know, in this particular lineage. It has to work. It has to work immediately with whatever comes your way. Mutations, you know, play the hand you're dealt, right? Whatever your genome looks like, whatever your, um, you know, we, and we could talk about uh, the distinction between, you know, what's between the genome and the anatomy, actually. Whatever the environment is, whatever you happen to be at any given moment, you can't count on what you thought you were going to be. You have to play the hand you're dealt. So I hoped that you would tell, I was going to ask you to tell the tubule story because... Well, both that story and the Xenobot story, in my mind, when you learn certain things, they obliterate a previous way of looking at things. If you always thought that squirrels and salamanders and babies and crickets 
are all generated by this algorithm-like robotic program that's kind of like, you know, stamping out fenders in a car factory. If you thought that was how biology works, you find out, well, we quadrupled the cells of this newt, was it? And a tube that's got to go from a kidney to somewhere else goes from formed by a ring of cells to a cell becoming a C and closing itself with a using a, a cytoskeleton and right so wait a minute so what does this tell us it tells us that the organism is a it's not a recipe it's a set of relations that the parts of the organism are trying to get to like a tadpole face am, am i describing this right mike yeah, it's a very interesting thing. I mean, prior to genetics and, and and being able to read genomes, some people had this idea that, well, there's a plan in the genome for the organism. It was always implausible for many reasons, but now it's completely dead because we can read genomes now. And we know that there's nothing directly in the genome that speaks to any of these things. What's in there is a description of the micro level hardware right? The protein level hardware that every cell gets to have. That's exactly what's in the genome. Now, it turns out, uh, and this is the part that needs lots more work, it turns out that for some interesting reason, which is, you know, people often think of evolution as blind and dumb and, and always picking like immediate, like, like local benefits, all, you know, always taking the short term benefits. If that's your view, why it is that we make these really, why it makes these really um, competent problem solving machines, it kind of needs a lot of explanation. So we, you know, that, that's a whole other thing. But the hardware that emerges out of this evolutionary process has competencies in lots of different capacities. And it has one of the competencies it has is to, uh, by default, pick up certain set points for homeostatic processes, anatomical homeostasis. And we call that the standard target morphology of the species. So, you know, why do why do um, frog eggs make frogs and acorns make oak trees? Because for the same reason that your calculator, when you put it together, you turn it on, it always starts with zero. Why does it have zero? Because you've got a piece of hardware that by default, right? The laws of physics are such that by default, it lands in a particular uh, configuration. Fine, reliably so, that's great. But what it also does is give you hardware that has all kinds of other competencies, which is it's reprogrammable and it solves problems and it, it can minimize certain things and optimize for other things, you know, kind of agendas and intelligence all, all the way through. And that's because I mean, I think I, I really think that evolution would not work fast enough without this stuff. If you really had to search the space of look at it this way, uh, when you make a tadpole with the eye in the wrong position, it will eventually get to where it's going. If we put a, an eye on the tail of a tadpole, those animals can see out of those eyes perfectly well. We've shown that this means that in evolution, if you have a mutation that I mean, one thing, I'll back up for a second. One thing as engineers and programmers, I don't know about you, but when, when, when I first started thinking about what the real theory of evolution was supposed to be, having written code first, it seems utterly ridiculous because, because we know what happens when you make random changes to these complex systems. I mean, are you kidding me? That, and it's not that it doesn't work. Of course, we have genetic algorithms and we can see that it works. But the rate at which you might expect interesting things to happen is um, very much up for debate. And so 
what's interesting is if every mutation that moved the eye, so let's say by, by but you know, mutations have usually multiple um, side effects, right? They do many things. Every mutation does multiple things. So let's say let's say there's a mutation and it moves the eye and it also does something else that's good somewhere, you know, pro, um, pro you know, pro adaptive somewhere else in the embryo. If that animal now can't see or the mouth is off or something, you will never be able to explore the benefit of that mutation. It's it because your fitness is low. You're now dead and that means that every time you want to do something, every time you want to find a good solution to something, you have to discover all the mutations that that do that without screwing up everything else. That will take, you know, I, I'm just that that'll take too long. I think what makes evolution actually go is the fact that the parts are competent. So if your eye is slightly off, but something else is happening, great, you'll get a chance to explore that and see if that's good for fitness, because guess what, your eye will find its way unless I mean, of course, of course, there are birth defects that and, and you know, that that totally screw things up. But the constant competency of these parts in physiological space, right, the, the homeostasis, the ability to solve novel, novel problems in, 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 in transcriptional space, and so on, means that you can explore it's a much smoother space It hides all of these um, things that otherwise would just wreck the system because your parts are competent because you're not building with with dumb passive materials. So that's one implication of all this. The other implication I think that's pretty cool is that it makes an intelligence ratchet. And the way that I think the ratchet works is is, is as follows. Imagine that um, because your parts are competent, defects in or, or, or suboptimal genetics often gives rise to pretty good bodies because the cells make up for it. They'll get to where they're going. They can make do with weird metabolism and so on. They'll make do. What that means is that when, when selection takes a look at two organisms, which look pretty good phenotypically, it can't tell whether they look good because the genetics are awesome or because the genetics were so-so, eh, but the cells actually made up for a lot of it. Once you can't really tell, then your power to weed out the good genetics from the bad genetics is greatly diminished. So what competency, developmental competency, that layer between genetics and, and, and outcomes and phenotype, the competency at that, letter, at that level masks a lot of information from selection, which means that if you want to make progress, you can't make progress by optimizing the hardware anymore, the genome, but you can make progress by cranking up the intelligence of the cells, the competency of the cells. And I just want to give two quick examples of that. The technological example of this, and this was pointed out to me by Steve Frank a few months ago, is that you know, RAID arrays, right? These arrays of disks that are designed to make them very, you know, make the whole system not lose, not lose information. Ever since RAID arrays got going, the quality of the hard drive media has dropped and it keeps going down because you don't need to have good media anymore because the RAID array takes care of everything. The pressure to have awesome disk media is off because the RAID will let you, right? So you get the idea. This is, this, and, but, but what's cool about it, it's a ratchet. You can't go backwards. Right. Once you have that, now you take off the raid. Uh -uh, the media, is, the media is, is stinks, so you can't do it anymore. So I think we have the same kind of ratchet in evolution, where once the parts are competent and they're competent from day one because they're cells, they already know how to do things. You have this immediate ratchet that you're better off optimizing the IQ of the cells and their various capabilities rather than trying to get the hardware right from day one. And the best example of this, and I don't know why all the other animals aren't such good examples of this, so that's kind of a gap that needs to be you know, filled in with details, but here's an amazing example that is basically the RAID array in biology. Planaria, right, these flatworms. The two key things about planaria, one is that when you cut them into pieces, every piece regenerates exactly what's missing. So you get tiny, perfect, tiny little worms the old material actually shrinks down so that when the new stuff shows up they're properly scaled right so it's incredible 
100% of the time, it's reliable. They're incredibly robust. In fact, they're immortal. There's no such thing as an old planarian. They're so good at this that they're just, you know, so champions of regeneration, immortality. They, you know, they, they, can, they can normalize cancer. I mean, just amazing. But one fun thing about them is that some species reproduce by tearing themselves in half and regenerating. They don't do the sperm and egg thing most of the time. That means that unlike us, when we have a mutation in our body, we don't pass it on to our offspring, right? Our, our germline stays pretty clean most of the time. Not so with planaria. They accumulate every mutation that doesn't kill the cell because every mutation that doesn't kill the stem cell gets propagated into the next generation as it rebuilds the body, right? Their bodies show evidence of this. For 400 million years, they've been keeping every, every mutation that doesn't kill the cell. They are mixoploid, right? Every cell has a different number of chromosomes. They're all, their genetics are all over the place. They look like a tumor. They're just an incredible mess. And yet, 100% anatomic fidelity every single time, right? What does that say about how little we understand the relationship between the genome and the anatomy? There, are, there is no model that would predict this that would say that, oh, yeah, don't worry, you're, you're, you know, your, your genetics can be all over the place, but the anatomy will be great. We have no models that predict that, except for what I just said to you about this intelligence ratchet, because I think what's happened there, more so than, than most other animals, is evolution's put all of, the, all of the hard work went into the algorithm. It went into, I don't care what your genetics are, to a wide range of defects, we can get this done despite the fact that the cells are somewhat different than this and that. All the hard effort went into polishing the algorithm. So I think, right, the competency of these cells, which is incredible. And then, and then of course, uh, the, the pressure to keep the genetics pure is, is low because the algorithm takes care of it, right? So that's, you know, that, those are some things that, that, that we need to think about. Mike, you made a, uh, put out a paper with your theory of, mind everywhere a technology approach to mind everywhere and and you talked about you you made mention of when students have not been pre-programmed with the idea that this or that is impossible they they just naturally pick up that um and i i'm not going to try to find the quote and so what what, what i want to ask both of you is let's say you could push a big reset button and instead of scientific revolution taking 50 years, we're gonna start a new university in a brand new country on an island somewhere. And we can, instead of clinging to reductionism, we can embrace an agent-based or a consciousness-based view of science. And we're unfettered to pursue that to the nth degree. How does that science look different 5, 10, 15 years from now as it develops? And what kinds of things is it doing that are just not possible in the reductionist view? I'd like to start with Don and then Michael. Right. So... Letting go of reductionism is a big move. We've all been raised in it. So this is a, a new trick for, for most of us and hard to, to think out of the box. But the, the direction that I'm myself pursuing and I would want to pursue is the physicists have already found structures beyond space-time. They're already there. They're finding these polytopes. They, they don't know what the polytopes are about. All they know is that when you compute the volumes of these polytopes, you get the right answer and you see symmetries in the data, and you can see how 
space-time gets its features of unitarity and locality from these structures that don't really care about unitarity and locality. They're beyond space-time. So the question then is, I think this is at the forefront of the current science. What in the world are these polytopes about? Right? They're the next step. They're clearly the next step beyond space-time. What are they about? And if we have a model of, in which we're talking about consciousness, right, we have to completely reboot how we think about it. Right now, 99% of my colleagues are in the reductionist mode. How do microtubule quantum state reductions that are orchestrated in the right way cause specific conscious experiences? How do integrated information structures in, in physical systems create consciousness? How does a global workspace with the right broadcasting capabilities, a working memory, how does that create conscious experiences? So it's all in a reductionist framework. If we start with small physical systems and then neurobiological systems, how can we boot up consciousness from that? Well, space-time is doomed. Those entities don't even exist when they're not perceived. So to be very, very clear, I have no neurons right now. If you looked, you would see neurons because that's a data structure you create in your interface when you need it. And as soon as you don't need it, you garbage collect it. So neurons exist when you perceive them and otherwise they don't exist. So the whole neurobiological reductionist approach and, and the physical reductionist approach, really, that's the big step first. We have to let go of that. And then whatever we propose is going to have to show where these polytopes come from. So what I'm working on are, is a dynamics of consciousness. So it's not in space and time. It's a dynamics in an abstract consciousness space. And it, it looks like the asymptotic behavior so the long-term behavior of this can be described by things called Birkhoff polytopes. And the Birkhoff polytopes turn out to be cells in the, the positive Grassmannian that gives rise to the amplitudehedron. So the direction I'm, I'm looking at right now, and this is, you know, a moonshot, but you gotta do it, is start with a theory in which consciousness is fundamental. It's a dynamics outside of space and time. And this, the dynamics itself can be stationary in the technical sense that the entropy does not increase. So in some sense, it's, it's a timeless dynamics of consciousness in the sense there's no entropic time. Entropy is not increasing. But you can prove a couple things. It's trivial to prove that any projection of this timeless dynamics by conditional probability will lead to an artifact of entropic time. In other words, the reason why space-time isn't fundamental is that time itself is an artifact of a projection of a dynamical system which itself need not be time, need not have any time in the in the entropic sense of time. It can have a sequence, but not entropic time. So from that we can then say, suppose we have a dynamical system of conscious agents in which there's not competition and there's not limited resources. It could still look like limited resources, like time is, is an artifact. That's a that's a limited resource. Evolution by natural selection itself, that whole framework may be an artifact of a projection of a system in which there is no competition, in which there is no limited resource. This would be a complete revolution in our understanding of, of how the whole universe works. So, because so right, right now we are not yet a species that knows how to think outside of time. And that's what we have to do. It's a new trick, but we can do it. We can learn to think about structures outside of time and perhaps outside of limited resources. Once we've done that, once we've got, so the idea would, would then be have specific models of conscious agent dynamics that lead to specific 
connections with like the amplitudehedron and the cosmological polytope so that we can then give a dynamical systems understanding of these static polytopes that the physicists have found. The polytopes are just sitting there. They encode all the information, but what are they about? You know, why is there this platonic world of polytopes just sitting there? Isn't there some like dynamism behind that that we should be understanding? Even if it's not in tropic time, there's some kind of dynamism. And that's what I'm working on is a dynamism of conscious agents whose the goal would be to show that it's asymptotic behavior precisely gives rise to these polytopes. And these polytopes, then the physicists show how to take them into space time. So we would then see how our interface is built. We have perception and consciousness now being fundamental, but scientifically rigorous. And then we show all the way through the, the asymptotics of that projects into the, you know, the amplitudehedron, for example, which projects into space time. We see precisely how our interface is created. And then we can play with the interface. Once we know what's beyond space and time with mathematical precision, we can expect new technologies that would not be mind-blowing and a new understanding of life. So on the, on the technologies right now, most of the galaxies that we see, we could never get to because they're moving way too fast. So if we try to go through space to them, there's all this beautiful real, real estate that's waving at us and we can never get to it. But if we don't have to go through space-time, if we realize that space-time is just a data structure, maybe we can go outside of it, go around it. We just don't have to go through it. That would be truly stunning. But the other aspect of this is that, that life itself, the distinction we make between living and non-living, we think of it as a principal distinction, right? We say, you know, a person, they're alive. A mouse is alive. Probably a bacterium, yeah, that's alive. A virus, uh, I don't know. A proton, definitely not. Protons, not. So we have this idea about what's living and what. From the point of view that space-time is not fundamental, is just an interface. The distinction we make between living and non-living is an artifact of the limitations of our interface. It's not an insight into the nature of reality. So what we have to do is understand that there's going to be this deeper level, perhaps a, a, you know, a theory of consciousness, but what that means is not that a rock is conscious or that you know a proton is conscious. It just means that we're dealing with the dynamical system of consciousness. And some of it, we, when I see Mike Levin, I get a pretty good idea about Mike as a conscious being and what he might be feeling and so forth, but it's fallible, but pretty good. With a mouse, I'm getting much poorer. And with a proton, I'm getting no insight into what I'm dealing with. But that doesn't mean that, that first, that the proton exists. It's just a, it's a symbol. It's an interface symbol. And second, my statement that it's not alive, that just means that my symbol is not very informative. That's all. So we have to, everything, as you can see, basically all of our assumptions right now in science, in, in cognitive neuroscience, trying to understand, almost every one of them has to be ripped apart and rethought from the ground up once we let go of space-time being fundamental. It's, it's, so the, it's, we need a, a younger generation that's ready to think out of the box because that's where the, the, the resource, the, the ideas are going to come. Mike. Yeah. Um, well, I think that uh, Don and I could run this on the same island. Uh, that's uh, that's what that's what, <laughs> that's what I heard. Uh, okay. I, I I would I would do a couple of things. Uh, I, there's a couple of things I would tweak if I could uh, to to how how things are done now. The first thing I would like to do is to and I said this in that in that paper. The reason it's called a technological approach to mind everywhere is that I would like uh, an engineering commitment to these things such that. 
don't let's not have preconceptions to how things should be that chemistry is the best level of explanation or that there's no way that my thermostat has goals and memories and you know and then work out up away from there let's just go with whatever model is going to give us the best prediction and control that's what engineers do and I take a bunch of flack for it because some people I, I've had people say, say, you know, you're going to use, you know, prediction and control as the criterion of truth. That's terrible. Well, what else you got? I don't know what else you have. <laughs> I don't know. I, I honestly I, I'm sure it's a philosophically naive view. Fine. But I, I don't know what else we have. Right. So so to me, all of this has to be cast in an observer relative relative. And I think Don was mentioning some of this an observer relative um, kind of uh, perspective where everybody's view of things is not equally valid no but we can compare them and we compare them with empirical experiment we do experiments on all this we don't have feelings about this so if you make a claim that some particular system has zero agency or very low agency or it can't do this or it can't do that let's find out can you train it can you uh, communicate with it can you right is it capable of of you, you will be surprised as we and others have found out that you know you can look at a gene regulatory network and say ah oh, this is the um you know this is a paradigmatic example of determinism it's just a bunch of arrows turning genes turning each other on and off well guess what they can do six different kinds of learning right you don't know these things until you try you can't just sort of put you know uh, put, uh, make make decisions about this from an armchair so so that's the first thing I, I would say let's commit to doing experiments and having engineering uh be uh the kind of uh, role model for this that's the first thing the second thing i would do is i would do away with almost right almost all binary categories so let, let's take evolution and developmental biology seriously what what they're telling us is that almost everything of interest is a graded continuum that you can very smoothly you know and if you think there's some sort of phase transition that happens let's zoom in and let's make some chimeras and and you will find out that in your in your sort of what you thought was a rapid transition there are in fact lots of in-between cases that are going to give you a headache as far as trying to decide is it cognitive or isn't it there's no way anybody's going to draw any convincing you know bright lines here right so so all of this is it's kind of like I, I use the example of it's it's kind of like the category of, of being an adult right it's useful in court and everything but we all know there's nothing that magically happens to you when you turn 18 that makes this a scientifically valid notion I mean nothing my, my son turned 18 today so hey. the <laughs> well pay listen listen up because because uh nothing nothing much is gonna is gonna change today uh right and so people have these um you know people have these categories it's is it a, you know is it a, a machine or is it alive is it a robot it's not cognitive i'm cognitive that's just physical none of these categories are useful they're not going to survive the next few decades as we make hybrids and cyborgs and the bioengineered things that all kinds of pseudo pseudo problems arise by pretending that there are <clears throat> that there are sharp distinctions between these things so that's the second thing i think we need to we need to get rid of the third thing uh, we need to radically revise, and this is this is going to get it touches very nicely um, onto things that Don was talking about, is this question of where is it encoded? So people ask me all the time when we talk about the goals for these states, they say, well, where is it encoded? Because they're used to looking at things like protein sequences, where if you ask me where is it encoded, I know exactly where it's encoded. It's encoded in the DNA. That's how protein sequences work. But most things don't work that way. So, for example, there are many great examples. One example is, you know, there's this thing um, uh, called a Galton board, which is a piece of wood. You bang a bunch of nails into it. You take a, a bag of uh, marbles and you drop it into the top of the thing. They go boom, 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 boom. They do this and you get up with this beautiful bell curve. 
So now I ask you, where is the shape of this bell curve encoded? You can stare at the wood, you can stare at the nails, you can look at the distribution of the nails. It's not explicitly encoded anywhere, right? Here's another example. Let's say evolution wants to make a triangular organism. It evolves the first angle, it evolves the second angle. Does it need to evolve the third angle? Nope, it's already there for you. Why are these things, where is all this stuff? And so, I, you know, I mean, people, people hate this kind of talk, but I think Don was exactly right. Somewhere in platonic space, there are some sort of affordances from the laws of computation, the laws of mathematics, the kinds of things that uh, don't change when the laws of the universe change, right? These truths of number theory and all this stuff, they are there for you when you make the right machine, when you make a configuration of matter that somehow resonates with these things, you get to pull down these very useful you know, you give it these very useful things that live out. I mean, I don't know where they, where they are. Mathematicians have been talking about this forever, but it's exactly right. If you use transistors to make a little, a little AND gate, you get a truth table. Well, where was the truth table when you were put, when you were soldering the, you know, the transistors together? That's not in there. You could, you can x-ray it all you want. Now you're not going to see it. These things are right. This my God, it's doing logic. It's a truth table. Yep. And you didn't, it's not anywhere that you can get your hands on. So I do think we need to get, get away from this simplistic idea that Things have to be encoded somewhere. And again, you know, people understand emergence and complexity and all that, but it's way more than that. And it's this idea that you don't need to micromanage all this stuff because a lot of it you get for free. The kinds of things that Stuart Kaufman talks about, the properties of networks, properties of, uh, you know, biomechanical kinds of things. There's just an incredible amount of uh, stuff out there in computation and physics and math. Various machines get to use it. And what evolution does is tweak the machines. And a lot of the, the hard work is not done at the level of that hardware at all. It's just pulling down these capacities. And so, so a lot of what the, so, so what's the work gonna look like? The work is gonna look like trying to understand, map out the shape of that space. What space was it that had a Xenobot attractor in it? What else is in that space? What else do these cells know how to do? And in particular for, you know, and so applications, talking about applications, you know, the ones that I can think of are, are twofold. One is regenerative medicine where we don't try to micromanage the process and try to operate the way that, you know, molecular medicine today is doing what, what, what you and Don were talking about before. It's all about rewiring the hardware. It's all about, you know, changing the genes, the protein pathways, protein engineering, all that stuff. That's fine, but let's, we, we can go beyond that and take advantage of the intelligence of the system. We should be operating with proper experimentation as far as what is the IQ level of all the components? What do cells know how to do? What does tissue and organs know how to do? And can we do behavior shaping? So regenerative medicine to actually re, um, rewrite, and we've done this in, in certain contexts, to rewrite the goal state and let the system do what, what it knows how to do, right? Engineers, you know, biologists don't often believe in goals, but engineers sure do. Otherwise, you couldn't use thermostats. You can only, you, right, you, you have a thermostat because you know full well you can depend on this thing, even though some stuff is going to change, it will get the job done, right? So you gain, you gain massive amounts of power that way that, that are just impossible from the bottom up. And then the other thing I think that we're going to gain from this is, is general artificial intelligence. Because by paying attention to how it is that competent, tiny little competent parts scale up into large selves, so right, so the scaling of cognition, the competition, and, and I, I could tell stories about how that might work, the competition and cooperation between these things as they scale to larger goals and more, more profound stress states and things like that, that is how you build 
real uh, real intelligence that is um self-developed from the ground up from pieces that don't know what they are until they sort of form themselves that's you know when people say ah oh, you know machines can never be you know they're, they're metal it's not the substrate it's not the fact that the, that what they're made of it's not the fact that they came off of a factory instead of evolution it's not any of that it's that i think it's the process of self-creation using using basic principles of active inference and limited resources and various other things that are very generic and then you have a system that has true preferences like intrinsic motivation and, and all of this stuff. And it really, you know, then you have a real a real agent as opposed to the kinds of machines and, and AI we have now, which is set by somebody else, by the user. The creator says, this is what you are. Here's what you can do. Here's the program that you're following. You know, you're good to go. And, and, and so on. So I think we can get way beyond that. Gentlemen, this has been great. I love just, I had a space nerd head buzz <laughs> talking to you about all this so thank you both uh donald uh hoffman author of the case against reality and uh don where can people find more of your work and so on well i post a lot of my stuff on twitter so donald d hoffman on twitter donald d hoffman h-o-f-f-m-a-n and uh if you google me you know, my name you can find me on wiki page and and my university of california webpage with uh, links to some papers and and videos and so forth. And Michael, where would you like people to find out more about you? Um, there's my main website is uh, drmichael11.org. So that's just that's a website. It's got everything: the books, the talks, the, the papers, the talks, and everything else. And Twitter, which is at drmichael11. Well, this has just been wonderful. Really appreciate it. I had a feeling this is going to be great. It was great. So thank you for your valuable time, both of you, and I uh, look forward to. Well, I don't know, maybe somebody will find an island and start a new universe and, and, and <laughs> it'll happen really fast. So anyway, awesome. great. Have a great day, gentlemen. Appreciate it. Take care. Thank Thanks you so much, much for having us, Perry. See you, Don. Bye. Yeah, good Thanks to see you, Mike. Yeah. Yeah. Great to see you. Until next time, this is the Evolution 2.0 podcast, bridging science, technology, business, and the big questions. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe on iTunes or on your preferred player. If you like the show, rate us on iTunes. Join our email list and social media at CosmicFingerprints.com. <laughs>